The year is 1770. The British colonies in North America are restless, but not yet in open rebellion. And Mr. and Mrs. Beethoven are welcoming a new baby, Ludwig, to the world. In this year, a man named Wolfgang von Kempelen, an inventor and an entertainer, wheels a large contraption into the royal court in Vienna. He aims to impress Queen Maria Theresa of Austria. At the time, Queen Maria Theresa's 15-year-old daughter, Marie Antoinette, would have been preparing for her marriage to King Louis XVI of France and enjoying the feeling of having her head firmly attached to her neck. This contraption that was brought to court was a chess-playing automaton, a man-made machine with spinning gears and loud machinery that moved chess pieces around a board with such skill and precision that one observer, an old lady, went and hid herself in a window seat as distant as she could from the evil spirit which she firmly believed possessed the machine. Join us as we discuss the 18th century wonder invention that played chess so well it spent years dazzling the most elite and powerful figures across Europe. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 65, The Mechanical Turk. All right, our getting to know you question today is, would you like to be famous? And if so, how? Um, so this is a great question. And I've actually been thinking about this recently. Um, so my brother and I, and a lot of people on planet earth really like the, uh, internet interview show hot ones. Have you watched hot ones? I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. Um, very, very well-known show, very popular. And it's renowned for, um, asking really good questions. Like they dig really deep into people's pasts. And so, like, I recently watched one with Courtney Cox from um, who's played Monica in Friends, like this iconic TV role. And they asked some Friends questions and they were good questions about Friends. But like they didn't ask. I don't know. You hear celebrities over and over be like, we get asked the same questions. How did you get in shape for Avengers? And it's like, that would be awful. (laughs) But this show is really famous for asking, like they ask just really good questions. There's like compilation reels on YouTube of guests being like you're really good at this you're asking really good questions i've never had a question like that before that's a really top-notch question and so um so it's worth a watch if you if if you've never seen it um but i've been thinking about that like why do i like this show so much i'll watch it even when it's people i don't know like typically why would i go watch an interview with some rapper i don't know but um um i'll pretty much watch whoever they interview and i was thinking about that and i think part of the reason and so my answer is yeah, a little bit, right? Doesn't everybody want to be famous a little bit? Somewhere in the in your heart, you kind of would like to be famous. And um, I think part of the reason, and I'm going to go like, I've been thinking too much about this, but I was thinking like, when I watched that interview, so this guy, Sean, who interviews these people, all I can think of is like, that would be so fun to have somebody care about like my life and my thoughts on this to ask to do do these research and ask me questions about like, you know, my childhood or my opinions on these things. And I kind of think that we want to be famous just because we want people to care about us. (laughs) Yeah. Like you just want to be like, now I know that people like me or whatever. Yeah. And that's not a, like a terribly new take. I think that's probably a, a pretty common observation, but I just, that particular, um, show was showing me i was like yeah people just the reason we like this is because who wouldn't want to be walk into a room and be treated that you're so interesting and so unique that like we did weeks of research to find these questions that like are really specific to you and your interests and you know what a unique and like multifaceted person you are we're not going to ask you just about friends or just about being a rapper we're going to ask you about you know, he's also, you know, loves sushi. And what's what's the best sushi he's ever had? And they're like, oh, that's a cool question. Nobody ever asked me about the fact that I've like, you know, s- spent 10 years learning how to roll sushi. And so I think we kind of just want to be cared about, which is <laughs> sort of sad. Um, and then my follow up, my slightly less um, serious answer is, yeah, I'd like to be a little bit famous. Like who wouldn't want to be a little bit famous, I think. And um, I said this about war at some point on the podcast, and I think the same applies to fame. 
um, which is like, when are we going to start listening to people who've gone to war to believe how awful it is? Yeah. Like pretty much anybody you ask who's been to war will say war is hell. And you know, you're not, you're never going to get an answer about how awful war is. Then you're going to get from somebody who's seen combat. And I sort of feel the same thing about celebrity. Like, there is no famous person who you can't, who, you know, you see that interview over and over and over people being like, no, it sucks. <laughs> like, I'm just trying to like go to the park with my kids and some ding dong thinks that, that that's a good time to come over and like, yeah. you know, and so I think the loss of, of autonomy would be really hard. So you'd either need to be like just a tiny bit famous. Like there's some comedians that I think that I really like that I think could walk through, you know, a major city center and very few people would recognize them and I'd get really excited. And those would be like the only people I think I would want to approach. Like if I saw Tom Cruise, I'd be like, that's cool that Tom Cruise is over there, but I'm not going to go get a selfie with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Like <laughs> it doesn't interest me. Like it's really cool. And he's super famous, but like who cares? And this is more relevant to you, Tyler, because you have seen, you do see famous people. You text me about it sometimes. <laughs> And I see very few famous people in rural Pinal County, um, Arizona, but, um, but so I think you'd want to be that famous, the type of famous where it's like, most people aren't going to come up to you, but the people who do like are really engaged with whatever it is that, you, you know, the work you do or whatever. Um, and then my alternative response to that is, or be so famous, like Leo DiCaprio famous that you can just like buy an island. And then yeah. you can create your own privacy, right? So I think you'd want to be on either one end or the other. But that's my rant about uh, being famous. I have in my head a short list of the only people that I would ever stop on the side of the road like, yeah. if I saw them. Yeah. And almost all of them are dead. So it's not an <laughs> issue. <laughs> Tyler's like, I think generally Friedrich there's... the Great of Prussia yeah. <laughs> was on this flight, I would go up to him. Yeah, Eleanor of Aquitaine, <laughs> easy. <laughs> uh, but most people, I don't think that I would bother them. Um, yeah, so that's a good point, I think, about um, the fact that we want to be appreciated and we want to be understood because sometimes it's easy to dismiss fame as like, oh, well, you just want to have everyone know your name. And yeah, mm -hmm. sure, that's part of being famous, but I don't think that's what people actually want about it. Because that's not like a nice thing. It's not nice <laughs> right. to just have everybody know who you are and what you look like. So my answer is I kind of like you, I subdivide the types of fame into different kinds. And I kind of think that there's like three kinds of famous that you can be. And the one is the extreme of like Beyonce, where everybody knows <laughs> yeah. your name. You cannot go anywhere without being stopped. You make a lot of money because you're very well you know, you're famous and you get paid a lot to do what you do, but also ordinary life as it is, is totally gone. You can't it's have that. Over, yeah. The other is the opposite of that. And I'm thinking of people like Lisa Frank, who are <laughs> also <laughs> household names, but nobody knows who they are. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Lisa Frank has a zillion dollars and can still go to the grocery store and not even, you know, no one bothers her. Um, did you know that she lives in Tucson? Are you serious? She lives in Tucson and like apparently, yeah, like people kind of know who she is and like I bet I bet her community is like, oh, there, that's her. There's Lisa. Yeah, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, for the most part, I bet she's probably able to just do her day to day. Who for knows? Sure. For sure. And then there's a middle ground, and the middle ground I think of people like Stephen Sondheim, who mm -hmm. are very well respected in a certain tier of society, but they're not necessarily household names. I mean, Sondheim, I guess, was quite famous, but I don't know if everybody would have recognized his face. Yeah. Um, he made a lot of money doing what he did, but also he's really well respected within his community. Right. And I'm pretty sure the only times he's ever getting interviewed or stopped by people are by people who appreciate his work and want to talk to him. Yep. They're not just like, trying to grab a selfie for their Instagram for likes. They're not, you know, trying to get clout in society or whatever. <laughs> These are just people who appreciate his work. Right. I have yeah. to say, of course, I'm interested in the middle kind of fame. Right. <laughs> the other two kinds, I don't know. I think, uh, 
you know, having the money that Lisa Frank has would be nice, I guess. But I'd also rather be appreciated by, you know, people who know what you're doing and everything. Yeah. You don't just want to be the guy who like, what is it on Mean Girls? Invented toaster strudel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, th- that it wouldn't be a bad life, right? No, you know, no, no, no. Good money and everything. But yeah, uh, you, you'd have to be like, oh, this is why people care who like, this is why. Yeah. You know, it's like it, it as opposed to Sondheim, where it's like, like you said, my reputation kind of speaks for itself in certain, yeah. certain circles. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. But the, it's the other kind that I dread the most. And I feel so bad for like, you know, Northwest Kim Kardashian's daughter. Oh, it's like gotcha. that poor kid has no chance of having mm-hmm. like a regular kind of life. Yeah. And I feel bad for people who don't get that, you know. No, totally. Like I said, when I see those interviews, it's like, we should listen to these people. It's this sounds pretty bad, like super, mm-hmm. super famous people. Um, I remember watching an interview with um, um, Michael Richards, the guy who played Kramer on Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. And he said that at one point in like at like the height of Seinfeld mania. So, you know, 1997 or whatever, when they were off um, production, like when the they were between seasons, he went to like bali or some like new guinea or somewhere crazy went to some very remote place and was like i'm just gonna like drink margaritas (laughs) on a beach in you know wherever um and get away from you know can you imagine being on seinfeld and just trying to walk through the streets of los angeles or new york in the 90s like it would have been everyone is doing their kramer impersonation yeah it would have been awful and he said that he was sitting there and then this guy, like he said, that, according to his version of the story, who knows? But this guy was like, came out of the the trees and saw him and like shouted some native language. And he said, and I heard him say Kramer. And this guy oh, had boy. like the TV show and they were translating Seinfeld into, you know, whatever they speak in Borneo. And um, so that would be a special kind of hell, I think. Like, I yeah. can't go anywhere. So I think you're totally right about that. Okay, so our um, topic today, I'm so excited that we, I always say it every time, but I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, I'll also say sort of a slightly behind the scenes um look at this so Tyler and I talk all the time about what topics we're going to do and we decide um I feel like sometimes the topics that Tyler um that our, our episodes fall into two camps um or sometimes do sometimes I see episodes and I'm like this episode should be called you should know this mm. like the French Revolution you should know about this and I've said this before like I'm glad we're talking about World War One so I can finally like understand it a little better um, and then there's also episodes that are, hey, did you know this? <laughs> mm. <laughs> and uh, this is a, hey, did you know this episode? But my favorite <laughs> part is that it really coincides well with what we've talked about um, just recently on the podcast about the French Revolution. Um, so we're going to see lots of lots of familiar faces. It's really fun. Um, but today we're talking about a piece of technology, a machine from the 1700s. Um, something called an automaton. We'll get into it. Uh, the story you're about to hear makes me ponder on technology and the future, what like artificial intelligence is going to bring to us, um, robots, all that stuff, which is obviously different from what happened in the 1700s. But it makes me think a lot of thoughts that I'm excited to talk about. Um, when I think about that stuff, it's all very exciting and scary um, at the same time. But um, we're going to jump in and talk about this machine that Tyler's going to explain to us called the Mechanical Turk. That's right. And the Mechanical Turk was an invention that was created in 1770 by a man named Wolfgang von Kempelen. He built it to impress Empress Maria Theresa of Austria. (laughs) And you may remember her name from our French Revolution series. Like you said, this episode could almost be like a a little coda onto that series. (laughs) Um, But Empress Maria Theresa was the mother of Marie Antoinette. 
-hmm. and she was Empress of Austria, very influential woman who has her whole own story that we didn't really talk about in the French Revolution series, but regardless, very powerful politician. So the invention, the Mechanical Turk, consisted of a large cabinet about three feet by three feet by three feet. And inside the cabinet doors, you could open up the doors and you could see various gears and cogs. It all looked kind of like the inside of a clock with everything working in you know, tandem to create mechanical functions. And then behind the cabinet, there was seated a life-sized model of a stereotypical Turkish man who had a black beard and gray eyes and he was dressed in Ottoman robes and a turban that was styled like, quote unquote, an oriental sorcerer. The Turkish man was seated behind the cabinet. And on top, the cabinet had a chessboard complete with chess pieces that were sitting on top of it. And this is because the mechanical Turk was an automaton that could play a game of chess. So... An automaton is, I first learned about autom automatons from the movie Hugo. Did you ever yeah. see that movie? Yeah, I've seen Hugo. Oh, that's a great movie. Martin yeah. Scorsese. Um, if you haven't seen the movie, maybe you've read the book. It's called The Invention of Hugo Cabaret by Brian Selznick. Either way, it's the same story. Um, and in the story, there's a human-shaped automaton. And in this case, when you wind him up with a secret key, he ends up drawing a picture and I won't spoil what the picture is because it's a great movie and a great story. Mm. Um, but anyways, an automaton is a machine that's often shaped like a human or an animal doing um, mechanical actions that are supposed to look like as though they're organic. So a really familiar example of this is a cuckoo clock which anytime the clock strikes at the hour, it sends out a little mechanical bird that makes a sound. And obviously it's not a real bird, it's an automaton. So it's doing something as though it was the natural image. So automatons have existed since ancient times. According to legend, King Solomon actually designed a throne with mechanical animals that would hail him as he ascended the throne. <laughs> so a golden ox and a golden lion would extend their feet out to help Solomon step onto the throne. And then when he got there, an eagle would come and place a crown on his head and a mechanical dove would bring him a scroll from the Torah. Okay, so I changed my answer. I want to be famous enough to have a throne that hands me a scroll of the Torah. Yes, that's the fourth type of fame <laughs> that we discuss. <laughs> Solomon and level fame. It, it is pretty solid, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there were also automatons in the medieval world. In the Muslim world, the inventor Al-Jazari designed a boat that had four musicians on it, and the boat was floating on a lake. And while it floated, the musicians would each play music. And they had facial and body actions, and wow. they would change the rhythms and the songs that they played depending on how you organized a board of pegs, which controlled the programming of the machines behind the scenes. Uh, automatons also had a revival during the Renaissance. Leonardo da Vinci himself designed a mechanical knight of armor, which could move its head, twist its arms, and sit up. So automatons have been around for a long time. They had their golden age kind of at the turn of the century or the late 1800s. But they've always existed, you know, as basically as long as people have been able to invent machines, which is longer than I expected. Yeah. So the Mechanical Turk was an automaton. Obviously, it would sit behind this big cabinet, and um, it would sit next to the chessboard. And inside the cabinet, the gears and mechanisms would move the arms of the Turk so that his hands would push the pieces around the board like he was a real person playing a game of chess. And the Turk was actually able to do peculiar things with the pieces so he wouldn't just move them around but he could move them in specific ways and he was able to move them to complete what's known as the knight's tour mm -hmm. and any chess players out there may have heard of this i didn't know what it was but it's a puzzle in chess where you're supposed to move a knight on the board 
so that it touches each of the squares on the board at least once. And thinking about doing that during a game of chess, I, that sounds impossible to me. <laughs> yeah. But the Turk was able to do it because, you know, he just takes the knight and he follows this pattern and it's all been programmed on the back end so that he can, you know, make it move where it needs to go. The owner who would display the Turk would sometimes place a small wooden box on top of the cabinet. And while the Turk was doing what he was doing, the owner would look into the box like he was, you know, checking on the mechanical forces that were allowing the Turk to move. And people who viewed this became convinced that the box had supernatural powers and that something was going on that was kind of mystical. And it even frightened one woman so much she would sit in the back corner of the room because she thought there were evil spirits going on and she didn't want to be a part of that at all. So this is something that um, the inventor designed to impress Maria, of Therese, Maria Theresa of Austria. And Maria Theresa of Austria, by the way, had 11 daughters and each of her daughters were named Maria. Did you know that? No. How, did, how did we miss that? All, all 11 daughters were named Maria with different middle names. And the youngest, Maria Antonia, was the one who became known in France as Marie Antoinette. Okay. So Maria Theresa has 11 daughters with the same name. She, when she was alive, had a legacy of being a very conservative empress. In the, in the paintings and the pictures of her, she appears very dignified, very imposing, very stern. To me, not someone who would easily be very amused. And you know, an automaton after all, they're kind of cool, but it's just a glorified machine. It's just gears and clockwork. You know, yeah. if it's a cuckoo coming out of a clock or if it's a knight turning its head or if it's a Turkish man playing chess, it's still just doing the things that its mechanisms are making it do. And so even though it's whimsical and fun to watch, you know, a machine play a game of chess, a game of chess isn't very interesting when there's only one person playing the game. But the inventor had a bigger surprise in mind when he brought the Turk to Maria Theresa, because the mechanical Turk did not simply play chess by himself. The Mechanical Turk played chess against live opponents. Mm -hmm. And what's more, the Turk always won. So like Tyler said, 1770, we're in the Austrian court. Wolfgang von Kemplin's got this machine. Um, but I thought it'd be interesting to kind of reflect on chess a little bit. So chess has existed in its current form since about 1200, which is quite old. Um, that's when kind of older versions of the game seem to have settled into the basic structure that we know now. So you could probably get by playing a game of chess in the year 1200 um, with some modifications, you know, like wow. pawns. Pawns sometimes move differently throughout the years. Um but people were writing books about chess theory in the 1500s and wow. um you know things like the rules of stalemate weren't solidified until the 18 uh the 18th century but you know it's it's a very old game which is fascinating there's lots of debate about kind of where it comes from exactly but the antecedents to chess seem to be a collection of ancient arabic games and chinese and uzbek and iberian games that all kind of lent bits and pieces to the eventual modern game. And you could see how that, how that would be if you, you know, played one version and you play another version that's sort of similar. You'd be like, well, in that version, you know, the queen can also do this other thing in certain situations. Let's add that. And so it's, it's really a pastiche. Um, and a lot of people want to take credit for being like our culture invented chess, but mm. it's kind of really hard to say. Um, but by the 1770s, when the mechanical Turk was built and rolled into um, the court, the romantic period was beginning to blossom. So if you've taken a college art or literature course, you might have come across this, um, the idea of like romantic literature. And so we're, we're starting to get into that and um, what that meant for chess. And, and there was a whole style of chess called romantic chess, which is fascinating to me that like the, the ideas of the romantic era could permeate how you play chess uh, but it did and it meant that like aesthetics and tactical beauty 
were really valued in a chess game as opposed to just playing winning. And so, you know, I, the way I kind of picture it is like, you know, these fancy dudes in their powdered wigs and they'd play and be like, do you see the, do you see the beauty in this move? As you took my pawn, I will now, you know, you can see them, you know, waxing poetic about it or whatever. And I think that kind of was. I'm going to spiral here in a minute, starting to imagine the rhyme of the ancient Mariner would have hated this chess game. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Oh gosh. Um, But at the time, so there was, so chess was art was kind of following the contours of society, which is really interesting and kind of weird to think about how that might even continue today. But, um, but um, nevertheless, at the time, by the 1770s, it was pretty much the game we play now. And it was already known as a challenging game. Um, it was a distinguished pursuit. And kind of as today, it was sort of a brainy thing to do. Like, um, you know, if there was a chess club, was there, did you, were you in chess club, Tyler? No, you know what? I've never been good at chess. Oh, really? <laughs> I have played so often like i've always wanted to be good and i've never gotten good at it well and that's the thing i think that's part of the allure is it's it's such a complicated game that's the metaphor right is like this isn't checkers we're playing chess now when things get complicated um but yeah so it's it's a it's a brainy thing to do um so at the time if you were a well-heeled gentleman or woman you would want to know for instance how to play backgammon that was a popular game You'd need to be able to discuss Homer and the classics and sing a little bit or play an instrument. And you'd probably need to know how to play a little bit of chess. Um, Now, some other features of the um, Turk that we haven't mentioned yet. It had the ability to hold a basic conversation or at least reply to questions um, using a letter board. So like letter, like little wheels would turn and, you know, letters would pop up and align and kind of spell out a simple response. I kind of think of it as sort of like a um, like a magic eight ball, you know, like you ask it a question and tap the glass and then kind of these letters pop up and it's like, maybe <laughs> we don't we don't super know a lot about what went on. We know some of the questions that were asked, like people were like, how old are you? Are you married? All that stuff. Um, but it could answer in English, French and German, which is pretty fascinating. Um, and then one of my favorite details is when it would put you in check, um, you know, when your piece was cornered, um, it would say a check, which is French for check. Um, it had, you know, kind of a, a rudimentary voice box and it could make that kind of small noise, which is pretty cool. Um, so this thing comes to court. And as you can imagine, it just blows everybody's powdered wigs right off. Everyone's like blown away. Um, interest spreads across Europe because, you know, oh, Maria Teresa's got this in her court. Well, we would like, you know, if, if you've got a fancy group of fancy friends, then you'd be like, oh, you'll never heard what I heard about is happening in Austria. We must, you know, we must have them come visit us over here. And so people really wanted to see it. Um, however, the inventor, he had a lot of other things going on. He was a really eclectic guy. He was really into steam engines and like trying to record. Um, and so the Turk kind of fell by the wayside for him. Um, and that was until Emperor Joseph II of Austria, so Maria Theresa's son. This is the guy who gave the birds and the bees talk to Louis the mm-hmm. <laughs> Um He actually ordered um, von Kempelen, the creator, to bring the Turk back. Like, hey, people want to see this. I want you at my fancy parties. And this is back in a time when, you know, the king saying, you should really think about doing this meant you're going to come do this or you're going to go to jail. And so... Um, kind of reluctantly, he's like, okay, I mean, I guess I can get the old machine out and dust the cogs off. And he did it. It was a hit at the parties that he was told to bring back. And so he kind of reluctantly went on the road with it uh, because the royals encouraged him, like, you need to take this other places. So in 1783, the Turk is touring um, Europe. In Paris, it played many famous, like, smart people minds that i'd never heard of you can go look at the article where it talks about that um one of them and it, it included um francois andre danican philidor philidor um and he was considered one of the best if not the best chess players in the world and um tyler was right that in the beginning the turk didn't lose basically um but philidor was one of the few people who actually did beat the turk however um, his son was watching and said it was one of his father's most difficult games. He was really sweating trying to beat the Turk. 
And so um, eventually people did come along like chess masters, but they were the only ones who could beat it. Um, it went from Paris, it went to London, all over the place. Its final game in Paris was actually against Benjamin Franklin <laughs> um, of great American fame. He was serving as ambassador to France from the United States and he played it, um, which is kind of a wild thing to, to ponder. And um, apparently for the rest of his life, he was fascinated with the machine. Um, it went to London and in London, the, dis the, um, the game was a little bit different because they put it on display and like the common people could come see it for five shillings. So it was like, all right, let's make a little money off of, off of this machine, you know? Um, also while it was, um, on this trip, it played against Napoleon Bonaparte. So again, people, <laughs> um, old cast of characters popping back up. Um, and there's some really fun details from the game against Napoleon. So the Turk is like this statue looking wooden thing sitting at a table. Napoleon said, I'm not going to sit at the table and play the chess game. I am going to sit at a different table with a different chess set. And my moves can be communicated to the, um, to the machine. Um, and so, <laughs> so, yeah, somebody was like, passing it back and forth but he didn't want to sit with the machine um and that makes sense as you kind of as i continue to explain so um napoleon also broke protocol broke the rules and said no i'm gonna take the first turn instead of letting the machine take the first turn which is not mm -hmm. how the machine normally operated um and the game continued but um that was kind of you know you can you can see clearly what napoleon's trying to do he's trying to crack this thing and he's like throwing a, a wrench in the works you know um, quick, early into the game Napoleon attempted an illegal move he moved his piece into a place it wasn't supposed to bow or what, go or whatever uh, the Turk once the move was communicated to him he moved Napoleon's piece back to its original spot and continued the game like no Whoa. no no you don't get to do that um, <laughs> Napoleon tried to move again the Turk responded by taking the piece and moving it off the board completely ah! And taking its turn. And then Napoleon tried again. And the Turk supposedly responded by sweeping its arm, knocking all the pieces off the board. And apparently Napoleon was like thrilled. <laughs> He's like, this is great. That's exactly what I was trying to get to happen. Um, and then played a real game with the machine um, and losing in 19 moves. So some of that, you know, there's with a lot of this stuff, there's kind of some speculation about how much of that actually happened, but it definitely played Napoleon and supposedly um, he was not able to trick the machine. Um, after this tour of Europe, the machine lay dormant in Austria for years um, and von Kemplin reportedly tried to sell it towards the end of his life. And, um, you know, it kind of just languished. It was a popular sort of, thing but then not so much anymore um and von kemplin actually died in 1804 and um so not you know 30 years after some or more or less after kind of the launch of this thing um but it's so interesting just so tyler you mentioned the knight's tour which is like a that's you know like the that's showboating in chess like that's a cool kind of weird quirky thing that a chess player can know how to do do people um, do it in the middle of a game? I don't think so. I don't know. I'm that not seems wild. Like, yeah. I can't imagine that. I think it's kind of like, hey, did you know this is possible? That a knight yeah. can move and never touch a square twice and hit every square. Yeah. But the fact that it could do that and that it was beating really good players. Um, mm -hmm. Like, you know, that it, it, it just, this, this was not just a, you know, a wind up toy. It was really a, a pretty um pretty advanced machine that was for good reason kind of blowing minds all across europe so eventually the turk got picked up again different buyers came along and purchased it and they would take it on display it made its way eventually to the united states hmm. and it met someone who signed the declaration of independence it also met Edgar Allan Poe, had kind of a whole <laughs> run through the United States. Finally, in, um, in the middle of the 1800s, around 1840, one of the last owners who had it died. And he died when he was at sea. And when the ship returned to land, 
all of his machines that he owned were given to the hands of uh, one of his existing friends. So the friend took the Turk and, you know, tried to auction it off, but he had low bidding. He ended up buying it himself. And then it ended up going to one final owner who, instead of, you know, parading it around and taking it on display, instead decided to donate it to a museum. So the Mechanical Turk was donated to a museum and it would sometimes give occasional performances. I think largely it was just there to be viewed um, statically, but sometimes it would perform. Um, and then unfortunately the museum was destroyed by a fire and the owner said that he could hear through the flames of the fire the syllables of the machine saying a check a check it's kind of spooky but everything in the uh in the construction of the turk was unfortunately destroyed except for the chessboard probably because it was made of stone is what i would assume um and that was the end of the mechanical turk as we know it so it had a pretty great long life but unfortunately destroyed and we can no longer view it today but my question is and I, I don't know if this is correct but per my understanding let me know what you think what I've heard is that in modern times it's actually impossible for a human being to beat a computer playing a game of chess hmm. unless you program the game to you know make mistakes or something there are computer programs that will always beat a human when it comes to a game of chess. It doesn't matter if it's Bobby Fischer or whoever, because it's a computer, you know, it knows every outcome of the game. And every time you make a move, it makes choices that are going to guarantee its victory. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I know I've heard of the, the IBM computer deep blue that played against people and stuff, but yeah, it makes sense. I mean, chess is such a, it's a rule bound game. Um, I looking at the Wikipedia page for chess, it said um, like the first line is um, chess is a board game between two players um, with no hidden information. Oh, interesting. And I yeah. think that's fascinating. Like, yeah, it's all just on the board, literally. And it's math. It's like, well, what move um, this piece can only move to a certain amount of places. And those moves would result in these outcomes. So it makes sense that a, you know, a supercomputer could just know, like you said, every possible situation, it knows what the outcomes are and how to respond. So, yeah. That's a good point. And if, by the way, if anyone is listening and if you have beaten the computer on chess <laughs> on insane mode, please let us know because I think <laughs> you might need to be on the news if that's happened. Oh, man. But so here's my question, you know, that's computer technology. And we're talking about a mechanical Turk that was invented in the 1770s. Right. How is it possible that the mechanical Turk was able to play a game of chess against a human person? You know, well, how did it know where to move? Right. And how did it respond to like, you know, a player moving, you know, it had to be able to anticipate the moves that the other player was making. Right. Right. Um, well, the answer to that, Tyler, is that Wolfgang von Kempelen, um, much like you and I, has played a trick on people. <laughs> um, Tyler and I are, have been talking about this in the way that von Kempelen talked about it, which was that this is a real machine that can really perform this. But in fact, um, the Mechanical Turk was a hoax, a bit, or rather it wasn't what it purported to be. Um, I hope you're not disappointed. I hope you're not hurling your earbuds in righteous indignation <laughs> at this point. Um, we talked a little bit. We about, won't like, do this very often, but yeah, no, 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 it's just too rich to pass up. <laughs> they actually didn't try to blow up the parliament building and gunpowder <laughs> plot. We made it off. <laughs> um, yeah. We actually talked about like, how should we deal with this? Should we upfront say this was a fake machine or should we kind of do the reveal? And um, I'm glad we decided to do it that way because um, that's the way the Turk quote unquote lived its life right like it it was amazing people all across the world um until the secret was out um and as tyler said it was destroyed in a fire and that's kind of when the secret was really and truly out because there was no longer any reason to keep it hidden um and so eventually at, by the end of the turks you know life cycle if you want to think about it like that the world knew the truth that um, it wasn't actually a machine doing this. And so um, we don't know 
who was inside the machine necessarily at every point in its history, but there was a person inside. Um, the machine was built very cleverly. And if you go look at the, um, the, um, on the Wikipedia page, there's a reconstruction in the 1980s. Somebody kind of rebuilt what they thought it might look like and, um, or what based on the drawings. And as Tyler said, it was designed that the cabinet, like the table that the Turk is sitting at can be opened up. You can open the doors and look inside and see all of these shiny cogs spinning and, you know, things moving and it even made noises like little rumbles and squeaks and and clicks um and all of that was fake none of that actually did really anything the stuff you could see was for show um and the the cabinet was designed in such a way that when you opened the doors there was a hidden compartment that could move so you could open one door and look through and then open another door and the person inside could shift themselves so that you could look through multiple doors and, um, you know, perceive it felt as if you were seeing the whole machine when in fact there was a whole compartment with a person inside that you weren't seeing. Um, I find it a little bit hard to visualize when you read the description of like how a person was hidden inside this machine. Um, but basically there was a hidden compartment and a person was inside in a very clever manner because um, I don't get the sense that people were figuring it out. It was very, um, it was very convincing. Um, this might answer your question. Like Tyler said, the question that you might've had a, a, of how did a machine built out of what I'm guessing is like wood and brass <laughs> do all this stuff. The other question I would have had would have been, why was Van Kempelen like, yeah, I don't really feel like playing with this machine anymore i'm gonna go work on yeah. steam engines like that doesn't make any sense if you've actually built a super smart robot that can beat the world's best players in chess um, and the answer was because it was just a parlor trick and he was like hey i'm a serious inventor i would like to be doing other things but then you know he kind of got dragged out um with this machine um i'm kind of struggling we can talk about it like how disappointing is this is it disappointing um there's a story which this one has been said there's no record of this contemporary record so this one might truly be made up but frederick the great king of prussia um saw it and was just like completely enraptured by it and he actually he said i will pay any amount to know how this works you must show me what the mm. secret to the turk is and he reportedly paid the owner and then the owner was just like, hey, see right here? I got a real smart chess player guy sitting in here and he moves the pieces. And supposedly Frederick the Great was um, like deeply disappointed, as you would be, right? Um, and so that's why I asked, like, is it disappointing? Because if I go to a magic show, if I see magic, I know that that woman has not been sawn in half or I know that that person is not, you know, actually whatever. But it's still very, very entertaining. Yeah. And, you know, magicians have for a long time been saying we, we get paid to to mystify people. We you know, you, you paid to come here and be tricked um, in a way that excites your mind and is just hard to fathom and is so entertaining. Um, and so I, I kind of for that reason, it's a little different than magic, but I'm kind of like, I don't know how disappointed I am. It's so clever that it fooled all these people and was so entertaining that um that it's there's kind of a level of like all right you got my respect uh turk but it is you know at the end of the day it wasn't what they thought it was which you know is a little bit disappointing yeah i think that's an interesting question and it is i would have loved to be in the audience and i think watch it at the time for sure because like you said when we watch a magic show we don't really know we we don't want to know the secret we just want to like feel the magic or whatever yeah but at the same time, if you're going to tell me like, hey, I've got this robot that can play chess, it just has to do it in front of a big nine, <laughs> nine or like three cubic feet box. Yeah. I'd be like, can you open the box? <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, yeah, I'm opening one door. And I'm like, no, open all the doors. <laughs> yeah. you know? Like to me, I'm surprised that nobody questioned that a little bit heavier. <laughs> like, yeah. OK, well, what's behind that other panel? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah I don't know. there's some artifice, but again, but, I mean, it, it convinced people. So who knows? It, it convinced must have people. been good, I guess. I don't know. I know. I wish we could see the inner workings to know exactly what it looked like when they would display it. 
Yeah, I do think it's pretty awesome that um, Maria Teresa and Napoleon Bonaparte went to their graves thinking that they had lost chess to <laughs> literally just like a robot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, That's pretty great. Yeah. So an interesting thing about that is um, <clears throat> so Benjamin Franklin, like I said, was very taken with it. And um, he um, he owned a copy of this book. So there was a book written by a man named Philip, Philip Thickness. Um, and the book is called The Speaking Figure and the Automaton Chess Player Exposed and Detected. And mm. um, I think even so, even to his death and owning a copy of that book in his library, Benjamin Franklin was just fascinated with um, with the machine itself. And um, and it's it's interesting because so we we know a little bit about um, about how it worked inside um there were magnets involved first of all and so when a player would um move so you know napoleon moves his piece and the way they had it set up was that each um that there were magnets underneath that would indicate to the person in the box like what had been moved so a little magnet would shift and you'd say ah this piece has been moved to this place and there was, it was numbered underneath. So you could see all 64 squares of the, of the grid. Um, each piece in the chessboard had a small, strong magnet attached to its base. You know, it would attach a magnet to a string when it was moved. And so you could kind of track it, which to me sounds very complicated. Like, can you imagine playing chess, not just playing chess on this level, but playing it blind in a box? Well, <laughs> like you... I mean, I'm imagining it playing it upside down, right? Yeah, like... yeah. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, pretty crazy. Um, and they actually designed it in such a way that these magnets, the internal magnets, um, couldn't be influenced by outside magnets. So they would, people were like, well, is, it's got to be magnets or something. And so Kemplin would actually often allow a large magnet to sit at the side of the board to show wow. people the machine is not being influenced by this. Um, but... So this um, thickness man who, who um, wrote that book, he saw through it and he said, look, I think that the inventor, I think Kempelin is a very ingenious man, but the Turks is a hoax. He thought that there was a small child inside, <laughs> which mm. I, I don't know how that would That's work. Hilarious. But, <laughs> um, and he said the machine is, quote, a complicated piece of clockwork, which is nothing more than one of many other ingenious devices to misguide and delude the observers mm. um but all of that is to say kind of like what you were saying tyler that napoleon and maria Teresa were like i got defeated by a robot and what that <laughs> made me think is what have they must have thought about the future yeah like they were sitting there and they were like okay i now live in a world where a robot can or an automaton whatever can observe my movements and then can then respond to them. So if I take this piece off the board, they know it's gone and they now change their strategy to adapt to that. And that must've been thrilling. Like if you think that you're looking at the first piece of basically artificial intelligence, people were having that experience in the, falsely, but, but credibly, you know, believably in the, before the American revolution began, and so I think about that a lot. Like um, I remember my dad one time I was getting ready to go on a school trip and I had um, I think he might have let me borrow his cell phone or maybe I had one of my own, but I had a cell phone. I had a discman because I'm not a barbarian. I'm going on a school trip in a bus. I'm bringing my discman. <laughs> I had the little zipper case that held like 20 CDs in it. Um, I had, what else did I have? I can't remember what else I had, but my dad, um, just kind of gestured to it. And he said, one day, all of that is just going to be the same thing. The cell phone will have the music and it will have the stuff inside of it. And I remember being like, you are on crack, sir. <laughs> 14 year old me was like, no, it's never gonna, you know, or at least not being able to like grasp it. Like how could a cell phone have music in it you know and in so few years we are to the point where it's like if this if the, if i can't watch high def netflix on my phone on an airplane 
then I'm calling the manager, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I get, I get thrilled thinking about like, and scared at the same time, like, what is this going to be in 50 years? Yeah. Like w- when I'm on my deathbed and, and my grandkids, you know, are doing whatever they're doing, like, what is their world going to look like? And it's just fascinating to me that Napoleon had that same thought, like, well, automatons are going to be doing everything like, by the time, yeah. you know, by the time the by the time the 1800s get here, we're all going to be out of work because of these automatons. It's cool to think that they've kind of had that feeling that I have in my own long time. time. Like, yeah, that's it's an yeah. old experience. It's crazy. A few footnotes. If you Google the words mechanical Turk, you will see that the first result is an Amazon-owned crowdsourcing tool called the Mechanical Turk, which for my money is much less fascinating than the one we've discussed today. Next, Wikipedia once again does not disappoint and has an entire article titled Human-Computer Chess Matches. Go give it a read, but we did want to point out that it wasn't until the 1980s that computers were able to beat serious chess players, with the most famous of those matches probably being the 1997 game between Garry Kasparov and IBM computer Deep Blue, which could be an entire episode on its own. Finally, our next episode will discuss Edith and little Edie Beale, the two socialites turned hoarders, maybe, who are the subject of a documentary and a film, both of which are called Grey Gardens. We're going to discuss the movie and the documentary, and we really encourage you to watch along ahead of time as we prep for this episode. So before next Tuesday, either watch the 90-minute documentary, which is actually available for free on YouTube, or watch the film, um, also called Grey Gardens, starring Drew Barrymore and Jessica Lange, which as of this recording can be streamed on Hulu and HBO. I promise you the movie and the documentary will totally blow you away. My wife and I watched it just this week. So take some time and watch along with us so that you can be ready for our episode next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with us or say hi, we can be reached on social media at our Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia accounts, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Talk to you next week.